0: morning class today will be um, week one perioperative um, care perioperative care um, involves pre intra and post-op pre-op is the time um, that the patient is preparing to surgery up until the time that they go into the operating room intra-op will be from the minute they set foot into the operating room until they are sent to recovery And then post-op care will be from the time that they arrive to recovery to the time that they are either sent home or admitted into ICU or admitted back into the floor if that's where they came from. Okay, now we're going to cover pre-op nursing. So pre-op assessments um need to be done two to four weeks before the date of surgery um, depending on what kind of surgery will be how much time they would need in order to prep you and it also depends on um, the patient's past medical history the whole point of doing a pre-op assessment is to identify any potential um conditions that may lead to any complications for the patient um so it's the way for them to prepare for anything um, that could possibly be an issue post-op, um, whether it's changing medications, stopping medications, um, getting some pre-op uh, labs, chest x-ray, um, or any other um, testing that would have to be done in order to clear the patient um, to deem them um, able to um, go into the operating room. Okay, the pre-op history includes the patient's presenting complaint. Why are they having surgery? Why do they need this procedure to be done? And it's also to confirm what kind of procedure the patient will have um, and confirmation of laterality if applicable um, to make sure that we're, everyone's on the same page as far as what the patient will have done past medical history, we're going to ask them any cardiac history. Um, are they hypertensive? Do they need to take any medications? Have they had a um, past medical history of arrhythmias? Um, because that's important to know because during the operating period, sometimes um, sometimes the anesthetics could um, potentially cause a patient to have some sort of arrhythmia. So we need to know if there's already a pre-existing and what it is. Um, is it going to react okay um, with anesthesia and the stress of surgery? Or do we need to do something beforehand. Any previous DVTs, especially if the patient's going to have some sort of surgery that's going to um, make them have um, long periods of immobility. Um, if they've already had a previous DVT, then that puts them at a whole different risk factor and we need to be preemptive as far as what kind of treatment we're going to give them before- beforehand excuse me um respiratory are they asthmatics do they have good control of their asthma um are they going to need to use your inhalers um pre-op or do we need to give that to them um during the operative period Are any issues post-op any copd we need to know what kind of oxygen saturation do they have beforehand um so we can be prepared um if there's anything that's going to potentially put them at higher risk um, their renal history. If they have a history of renal insufficiency or any kind of um renal disease, um, then we need to know about that because certain medications are processed um and released through the kidney. So we need to make sure that we know um if any doses need to be modified, altered, etc. For endocrine, especially the diabetics, um they are going to have to continue their um, antigly- um, glycemic medications, but we may have to alter them. If they're on oral medications, um, they may need some insulin um, in the operative period um, just because they're going to be NPO. And we're not going to exactly give them the same medication because they don't need it, because they're not going to be having this extra um, food component. But they still need to be monitored and they still need medication. Last menstrual period. Anyone or childbearing age, anybody who still gets their period, uh, needs to have a pregnancy test. Um, oftentimes, patients tell you that they, um, there's no possibility that they're pregnant, and sure enough, something happens, and they are. Um, so just um, in order to make sure that all those bases are covered, you are going to do a pregnancy test on those patients. Any past surgical history, what, when, and why? And be specific patients oftentimes don't want to reveal any cosmetic surgeries, um, but it's important to know if there's anything that could potentially have built any adhesions where the skin, you know, where the tissue may stick, because those could lead to complications afterwards. Um, especially sometimes patients also don't like to disclose things that maybe occurred a really long time ago because they think that if it's been, you know, many years then it doesn't count, but it does. We need to know um what has been done to this patient. Any past anesthesia history? If they've ever had any complications, or any side effects or reactions to medications, if they tell you, for instance, that they've um, had a lot of nausea and vomiting in their past surgery, then it would behoove us to um, be proactive and, you know, give a medication for nausea and vomiting before they get um, those side effects. Drunk history and allergies. Um, we need to know prescription, over the counter, herbal supplements. Oftentimes, patients don't think that um, um, herbal um supplements or natural supplements count because they're natural, but they do. Sometimes there are medi- um, there are um certain supplements that may interact with medications or may cause um, let's say, prolonged bleeding or any of those things. So we need to know um what they're taking because they could potentially have to stop any food and drug allergies um food often um may um have cross reactions to medications for example, if you're allergic to eggs you cannot get propofol which is a sedative because it's egg-based um seafood cross reacts with iodine um and kiwi and bananas um uh um has a cross reaction with latex and there we need to know um especially with those latex allergy patients even though um most things nowadays don't have any latex components in it um there are still some that still do so we need to know in order to prevent that patient from having some sort of reaction to a latex product oftentimes they'll schedule those patients first thing in the morning that way there is no chance that something came in contact with the room and now the patient may also come in contact with it afterwards family history any person that has had um any previous issues um with surgery um maybe they tell you oh my great-grandmother died during surgery um you know we have certain genetic um, diseases, such as malignant hypothermia, which could be um, related to that. Remember, the technology has changed. There's no, um, not as much documentation as there is now, um, so it is something that we need to look into social history do they smoke do they vape do they drink any drug use past or present we need to be cognizant that um if you have somebody who's a recovering alcoholic or a recovering addict we need to be cautious on what kind of medications we're giving because we don't want to send them into a crisis that um we could have been um prevented ASA a scoring. This is just for your knowledge, just so you kind of get an idea. Um, this is something that anesthesia is going to score them on, and it kind of gives them an idea of where this patient stands. It goes from one to five. One is a patient who has no medical history. They really don't take any medications. They're um, healthy individuals. Um, their chances of having complications during surgery um, are going to be pretty minimal. And then um, two, three, four, and five, they go up um, on the amount of, um, comorbidities that the patient may have. Um, so there we would obviously, um, be ready for, um, possible complications. A level six is somebody who's been deemed, um, with no brain activity so they're brain dead and these are your organ harvesting where um the patient has donated their organs um and they are basically the surgery is only to do the harvesting um we know that the patient is not going to have any positive outcome from it mpo status mpo means nothing by mouth in latin um these are the fasting um status of the patients these are the different classifications it's important to emphasize npo status with patients and really give them descriptions of what it is that they can or cannot have pre-op um, in order to prevent them from having any aspiration in case that they vomit um clear liquids is pretty much anything you can see through um you would include their black coffee but again it no sugar no cream um anything like a broth Um water, juice, and those a patient can have up to two hours pre-op, um, especially with small children. You know, we want them to be able to still have something to drink, um, but we need to make sure it's something that if they do throw up, it's easily to be suctioned, etc. cetera. Breast milk, um, it's pretty light and easily digested, but it still needs to be um, stopped within four hours of a surgery formula and non-human milk that includes almond milk oat milk any of those um alternative milk products um six hours a light meal also six hours a light meal is exactly that light um a piece of toast um nothing fried nothing fatty um it's not rice or beans it's not a steak it's not taco bell um you need to be um, clear with patients because they kind of confuse a light meal um, with heavy meals. Heavy meals or anything that um, would take um, a good while to digest um, would need to be NPO for eight hours. Labs and testing. Um, oftentimes you will see patients that will have a cbc and a chemistry with renal function ordered that's going to give you a good picture of where the patient stands They're white blood cells red blood cells um hemoglobin hematocrit um the renal function um the chem panel um sometimes you'll see it listed as a chem 8 because it's the eight electrolytes uh bmp which is a basic metabolic panel but they all do the same thing um they look at or the patient's electrolytes renal function um um and sometimes they will even add like a liver function in there um because patients um a lot of things get digested by their renal or the liver um of the patient's body so we want to know where they stand and if they're even able to do that p t p t t are your coagulations um is this patient at risk for um bleeding maybe they're taking an antiplatelet or an anticoagulant and we need to know especially if they're going to have a surgery that may have um, increased bleeding. INRs are for patients that are on Coumadin. It needs to stay within a certain range. Um, and depending on the type of surgery, the doctor will determine um, what the range would be. If the patient is at potential for having um, extensive blood loss, then you may have to order a type and cross. Basically, it's preparing uh, the blood bank to be ready in case the patient does need surgery, does need um, blood products. Um, they would be ready um, to give the patient something that's compatible with them. Pregnancy tests, like we said, on anybody with childbearing age, anybody who still has their period, um, even if they have an ID, even if they've had a tubal ligation, you do want to check it um, because stranger things have happened. Um, patients have gotten pregnant with IDs with tubal ligation, so we need to make sure that we are checking that. EKGs would be done, especially if patients are having a major surgery or if they've had any previous um, cardiovascular history or over the age of 40. We want to make sure that their heart um, is having a normal rhythm and there's no issues that, um, um, that may have been missed in the past chest x ray especially if they have a history of respiratory disease or new onset of some respiratory symptoms previous history of tb or smoking or vaping um, all those patients may have an increased risk for respiratory complications just because your lungs are no longer able to fully function the way that um, somebody who wouldn't have any of these medical histories would have as far as the nursing care, um you want to make sure that the consent has been um explained by the provider, so the provider needs to explain to the patient the risks, the benefits um what exactly is going to get done um if there's any complications, what potential other surgeries may have to be done during the time um any alternative um procedures um and any of those things has to be the provider you as a nurse you serve as a witness you need to ensure that the consent has been signed voluntarily by the patient that the patient has fully understood um what is going to be done um and that the signed consent is in the chart and available for everybody to see um, your role is not to explain your role is not to um, give them risks and benefits um, that has to be the provider if your patient comes and says hey you know what i didn't quite understand um i have more questions or is this really necessary anything like that you need to call that provider back and they need to come back and fully explain what's going to happen Same thing goes for anesthesia. Anesthesia consents are obtained by the anesthesiologist or the resident or the CRNA, etc. And they need to explain what type of anesthesia they're going to be given, um, any risks, benefits, any of those things has to be done. Again, provider. Um, Any pre-op preparations that need to be completed, let's say they're having a GI surgery, including their bowels, you need to make sure that they completed their bowel prep. Um, If they need to have any pre-op medications to be given, they also need to do that. Any pre-op um, skin prep, sometimes they send them home with like a wash and then you repeat it before surgery and then they do um the cleaning again in surgery. Um, so you need to make sure that they have done it. As far as shaving, um, it used to be common practice to shave patients prior to surgery. They try not to do that because there could be some little nicks, um, or little cuts, etc., that could occur, and then that just puts opens, um, you know, it compromises the um, skin integrity for the patient make sure that all jewelry has been removed any piercings make sure you're specific to patients sometimes they feel embarrassed on where they have piercings and then they don't want to disclose it um but it is to their benefit um to have that jewelry removed and if it's unable to be removed it needs to be taped um especially if the patient's gonna have some cautery where it's high heat um that heat travels um and Anytime that there's any kind of metal in the body, that metal is going to pick up that heat and the and the patient can have a potential burn. Be specific. Um, sometimes you have to be a little candid um, because it's really, you know, they may feel embarrassed or they may just not, you know, feel comfortable, um, but it is for their um, safety. Ensure dentures are removed make sure any bridges, um, anything that could potentially fall or um get hit when you're um intubating a patient you don't want them to swallow a tooth a bridge or anything like that um that obviously is going to pose an issue for the patient any loose teeth this is usually more for pediatric patients hopefully your adult patients don't have any loose teeth but it could happen um but your pediatric patients make sure that if they do have any loose teeth that you are telling anesthesia um it's not really a matter of the tooth falling and having the tooth fairy um you know miss it um but it's more that the patient may um aspirate it um if they're wearing contact lenses it does need to be removed um eyes naturally um when you have paralytic agents, they are going to um um their eyes naturally their eyelids are going to open so that potentially could be an issue with the corneal abrasion so we want to make sure that the patient isn't wearing their contact lenses because you don't want the patient either for the contact to stick and be unable to be removed or the patient to have a corneal abrasion that later on um, has to be treated etc patient belonging bags you need to make sure um, that they are properly labeled and that they are given to um a secure place um oftentimes some patients come alone to the operating room um they may or may not have a family or friend or somebody you can give it to um so in that case their belongings all have to be labeled and all have to be placed in a bag and um in most facilities security will take it until the patient's able to go home um and they would be returned if you do give it to a family member a friend a neighbor any of that um you do need to um document who you gave it to and what you gave to that person um keeping patient warms naturally um anesthetic agents will bring down the body temperature but that increases the risk of an infection for the patient so we are going to be proactive in providing warming measures um there is a manufacturer called bear hugger but there are others um, and they basically they make these um warming blankets they connected to a hose um, and they heat up the patient not enough that they um have direct contact um with the heating agent to you know not have a burn but the patient will be kept at a temperature that will decrease any potential complications Ted holes, which are compression devices to prevent any DVTs, um, or any sequential compression, which inflate and deflate, um, especially for patients that either are having a very long procedure or they are high risk for DVTs. Um, we want to make sure that we provide the patients with that unless there's um, some sort of complication on why the patient cannot have them, and that would also have to be um, identified and documented. Your baseline vital signs, you need to know where the patient came in so you're able to assess post-op. Are they back to their baseline? Are they completely off? Is there any issue that we need to address before we send them um, to wherever it is that they need to go? It's important also, for instance, if you have a patient with COPD, naturally their oxygen levels are not going to be normal at 9900%. But if they naturally are pre-op have, let's say, a 92%, then we know that post-op, they are going to be lower than that. And we're not going to be concerned thinking that there's something really wrong with the patient if, let's say, they're at 89-90. But that is a natural drop for that patient. Verifying the medications. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, starting IVs. Make sure that um you have an IV that's patent, that's working, and that it's an appropriate size. Um, You know, we want to make sure that we have something that is um available Um, in case we do need to have to infuse rapidly um, any IV fluids or if we have to give blood um, that's more viscous and thicker and obviously needs a thicker IV. Obviously, if you have a very frail elderly patient, you're not going to stick them with an 18-gauge because you're going to go right through their vein. But use something that's appropriate for the patient, but that is also available in case of an emergency. Verifying that medications are given in their timely manner, for instance, antibiotics, research says um, that need to be given within 60 minutes of the patient having surgery. If the patient's going to be delayed, then we want to notify and we want to adjust that um, and give it. Or let's say we gave it thinking that the patient was going to go into the OR within that hour time limit. Something happened, the case is not delayed. We need to notify anesthesia. Hey, the antibiotic may have to be re-given um, or this is the time that we gave it and now we're delayed. Verifying that the consent is in um the chart um, and verifying that the site of the procedure has been marked by the provider. Especially with um, surgeries that have a right or left, um, we want to make sure that the right um, place has been labeled for the patient. Um, Unfortunately, there have been instances where patients have had surgeries done on the wrong side. This is a sentinel event. It means um, that it has caused some significant um, trauma, damage, or even death for a patient. Um, so we want to make sure that the patient verifies what side is going to be done and that the surgeon um, and the consent all match. Um We're going to be verifying that the medications that the patients needed to stop pre op have been stopped. For instance, herbal medications such as ginkgo, ginseng, garlic, all increase the chances of bleeding. So those should be stopped within two to three weeks before the surgery in order to prevent a patient from having prolonged bleeding. Another example would be feverfew. It is an herbal supplement. It should be stopped also about two to three weeks before surgery because it can have... um, adverse effects with the anesthetic agents. Chow is a mnemonic for um, medications such as clopidogrel, which is Plavix, which is uh, an anticoagulant, or aspirin. Those should be stopped within seven days from the surgery. It's not that the platelet um, activity is reversed. The antiplatelet activity has been reserved, reversed, but actually it means that by that time, new platelets have been formed by the body and the patient will be um, hopefully back to their um, normal um, platelet activity. Hypoglycemics, um, again, they're not going to be stopped. The patient still needs to have their hypoglycemic agents, but there may have to be modified doses or maybe switch temporarily temporarily to insulin in order for us to have a little bit of a better control over how much the patient receives. Um, oral contraceptives or hormone replacement therapies. They do increase the um, risk factors for DVT formation. So those usually um, the patient would need to stop four weeks pre-op. Again, during that time, they do need to use a backup contraceptive um, in order to prevent pregnancy. Or they're doing the hormone replacement therapy um, that they know that they're going to have um, the side effects they were having before they started taking the hormone replacement therapy. Warfarin, which is coumadin, you need to stop that within five days of surgery. Um, again, the INR levels are going to be closely monitored because they do need to stay within a certain amount of range. Um, depending on what kind of surgery the patient will have. The next slide is a pre-op checklist. Um, it just kind of lists all the things that need to be checked off, um, prior to um surgery. Um, informed consent. Um, we touched based on it a little bit before. Again, provider. You as a nurse are only witnesses to what occurred. Um, consents have to be signed by a competent adult or legal representative for the patient. Um, they need to be provided um, in the language that the patient is able to understand. It's oftentimes you see, oh, the brother, the sister, the partner, um, etc. They're like, oh, I can translate. Um, legally, we can't do that. We need to um Get a legal interpreter to do it. Depending on the facility that you work in, they have different options. Sometimes it's a interpreter line, and um, sometimes they have um, tablets where the interpreter is able to see, like in a FaceTime kind of situation with the patient and explain to them in their native language what is going to be done. Um, if you are as um, an employee, um, you may need a competency that says that you are able. Um, and that you know enough medical terminology to be able to provide um, translation for um, a consent because appropriate words have to be used legal terminology um, sometimes depending on what country you are some words may mean something different um, so we want to make sure that we are providing the patient with the correct information and that needs to be documented in the chart as well if you consulted the interpreter hey. Okay. Um, as far as consents being signed for pediatric patients, um, sometimes the legal guardian may or may not be mom or dad. It may be a grandmother, maybe an aunt. Um, always ask for um, court documents that say who the legal guardian is of this patient. Um, and those should be scanned into the chart. Um, sometimes with legal um, with electronic documentation, it may already be in the chart. Just verify that they are providing a deed that says that this is a person that can consent. Same thing with a legal and um, with an intellectual disability adult, they may have a legal guardian, um, and that person is someone that's going to be signing, um, because again, the patient needs to be fully, um, able to understand what, um, is going to be done to them and be able to have um, the mental ability to consent to it. Um. For um. Pediatric patients, um, there are emancipation um, laws. Um, emancipation, especially in the state of Florida, has to be gone through um, the court system. It's not that they, um, let's say, got married and now they're considered emancipated. No, there has to be a legal, court deemed emancipation for their patient. Exceptions are if a patient is doing a consent for anything relating to a pregnancy. Um, that patient is considered emancipated during that time. So they can do um, consent for anything that has to do with that pregnancy. Same thing with STDs um, or anything like that. They can consent without um, the need for a parent. Once um, that girl um, delivers that baby, they may continue to consent for their child. But now for themselves, they would need a legal guardian to consent to them. Okay, Um, pre-op education, Um, patients often have a lot of anxiety because they don't know what to expect. So pre-op is a great time to kind of let them know, um, especially if they're going to be coming out with a train, if they're going to come out with some sort of machine, um, so they're not scared and they're not um, uh, unaware of what may or may not be attached to them. Here you have... Um, An on cue pump. This is used often in um, orthopedic surgeries. It has a little catheter that goes directly into the wound, and that bulb is filled with um, anesthetic um, medications such as bupivacaine, proparacaine, um, any of those, and it starts to slowly infuse into the wound. But again, it has to be attached to the patient, and they're going to have this extra. Um, sometimes they put it in a little bag. Sometimes they attach it to their gown. Um, but it's something again foreign. Same thing with Jackson Pratt's or any kind of drain. Um, they're sutured to the patient, so it is important to be aware um, that they may come out with these things. Same thing as their options for pain medication. What kind of pain medicine could they um, potentially anticipate that they could have? Um, it's important that the patient has some sort of um, knowledge of what their treatment will be post-op so they have better control of it. And they're more involved in it. Um, If they are going to have a Foley during surgery, they're going to come out feeling very irritated. Um, And it's important to let them know, hey, you may have a Foley and afterwards you may feel some irritation. So they're not like super scared that um, all of a sudden now they have some irritation um, or something's bothering them, you know, in their private areas. Um, I advise them if there's gonna be any machines, sometimes um orthopedic surgeries, they attach them to like these range of motion machines. They're big, they're bulky, um, there's something that they may or may have never seen. Um, so it's good to tell them. Um and then as far as diet afterwards, you know, inform them. You're gonna start with liquids, and then you're gonna advance as tolerated. Um, it's not they're gonna wake up, they may wake up super hungry and they wanna have like a burger with fries. No, you need to start slowly, or they may very well be MPO afterwards. Especially, let's say if they had a bowel surgery, they need to have some bowel rest, um, afterwards. And some to spirometer, show them how to use it. Sometimes patients just want to inhale, exhale, and bring it all up. It's not about bringing it all the way to the top. It's about, um, bring it, holding it, and then releasing it in order to allow the lungs to fully expand and hopefully prevent any fluid buildup around. Um, the pleural that could potentially become pneumonia. Intra-op, again, this is the time um, as soon as the patient sets foot into the operating room up until the time that they get sent to recovery. Um, the main risk of the intraoperative um, phase would be anxiety for the patient. Um, some patients may have never had surgery. They may be adults and this is the first time. They may have had many. Regardless, surgery is an anxious um, time period. It's scary to go into surgery you may or may not know um if you're gonna be okay or you may have a lot of concerns they may be um based on something or they may be completely irrational but it's up to you to make sure that you kind of ease that patient um 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 into having less anxiety um injury is a big deal remember your patients are unconscious during the time that they're in the operating room so it is up to you to be that patient advocate to make sure that you're looking out for them and that they are not having any injuries or any um potential complications um compromised tissue integrity hypothermia um any surgical errors surgical site infections um goals of the intraoperative nursing is to prevent injury maintain homeostasis and ensure that the patient has appropriate temperature control. Reducing anxiety, like we talked about, is providing education for the patient, um, explaining to them what may or may not happen, um, and maintain a calm or environment, especially when the patient's entering, when the patient's going into induction, just because that's an anxious period. Um, anesthetic agents are lighter than air, so when the patient has them on their mask, um, sometimes it, they feel like they're not having enough oxygen, and that just may increase their anxiety. Reassure them talk to them, um, be present for them. Preventing injuries. We want to make sure that the patients are positioned correctly, that they're anatomically correct. We don't want an arm to be fully extended to another area. Um, and later on, they're potentially have like an issue or an injury that um, could have been prevented. Padding of bony prominences um, and any pressure points. Um, Especially if you're going to have a long surgery, you want to make sure that everything that could potentially develop a pressure injury that you are padding. They have different options. Sometimes they put sheepskin. Sometimes they have these silicone pads. Um, It just depends on what, um, wherever you work, um, has available, um but you need to ensure that all those areas are padded sometimes it's not a matter of having a long surgery and occur. You can have develop a pressure one um ulcer right away where it's that red area um there's no break in the skin, but it's still red, and that still has to be documented and most of the time it's usually a completely preventable injury uh, when you're moving patients, make sure that we're not um that we're moving them appropriately using the draw sheet or a rolling board um so we don't have that sheer force on the patient especially if they have already some coexisting skin integrity issues we don't want them to have like a skin tear um just because um we didn't move them correctly your ted hose sequentials um in order to prevent any dvts make sure that the eyelids are closed once um and usually anesthesia does this but just make sure that um, it does get done um in order to prevent any corneal abrasion when the paralytic agents cause the eyes to open the eyelids to open Compromised tissue integrity, um, underneath the drapes, sometimes it's hard to identify if there's something that's going on, but be proactive. Make sure that you're seeing, um, if there is like maybe, um, I don't know, there's like um, excess, um, fluids or bleeding that may be seeping on the sides that could be causing the skin to become macerated. Um, if you're fully, you know, make sure that it's draining appropriately, that it's not draining around, um. Things like that. Preventing hypothermia, we said we need to use those warming blankets in order to help keep the core body temperature at an appropriate level, where the patient will not have an increased risk of infection. Because naturally, again, anesthetic agents bring down um, body temperature. Preventing surgical errors: make sure that the right, um, the right that the site was marked, um, that it was the right place, and the timeout is done time a procedure is essential it's something that has to get done it's something you never ever want to bypass um everyone needs to stop at that time um and listen you know the music gets turned down and everybody that's there needs to acknowledge what um that this is the right patient we're verifying date of birth um we're verifying the procedure that's going to get done any allergies any medications that were given any implants that may be um placed in the patient everybody gives um confirmation that this is the correct patient that is the correct procedure and the right instrumentation um, wrong site wrong procedures are sent events and oftentimes these mistakes are fully um, preventable, um, and there's usually a bypass in these protocols that are meant to not just protect the patient, but protect everybody that's involved. Hey, preventing surgical site infections. Is your patient going to have an infection immediately when they're in the operating room? No, but things that may be done incorrectly or sterility that was broken, um, an antibiotic that wasn't given, all those things can lead to the patient potentially having some sort of surgical infection afterwards. So we want to make sure that we're doing everything that needs to get done in order to prevent those complications from our end. Ensuring that everyone um, is gowned and gloved, that there's no unnecessary entering and exiting of operating room every time the door is open. Obviously, you're letting air in, and you don't want to do that. So unless you have to exit, unless there's an emergency, um, if you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. Um, and that's just to protect the patient making sure that a septic and sterile techniques are followed, um, that if there's a sterile field, that you're not compromising in any way. Um, sometimes accidents happen, but if that sterility is compromised, then all of it has to be um, restarted. Um, so obviously, that's nothing I didn't care. Sometimes that may not be able to be good done. So... Um, If there is a sterile field present, uh, make sure that you are um, respecting the boundaries, respecting the space that needs to go around it, and that you're not doing anything that could potentially compromise it. If you're getting your supplies, your trays, your instruments, and there's any break in the packaging, that instrument is no longer considered sterile, so you need to get a replacement for it. Pre-op antibiotics that they're given within that 60-minute mark, um, evidence base has shown that that is the mark um, where it is fully um, able to help the patient prevent infections. Anything above that either needs to get repeated or um, it's not going to do uh, the same thing that it's intended to do make sure that skin prep has been done as per the protocol confirm your allergies you don't want to use a betadine, um, skin prep on a patient who has an iodine allergy same thing be mindful of um, whatever skin prep you're using that it is for the correct area um, for instance chlorhexidine comes in orange and blue if you're having orthopedic surgery you don't want to be using the blue chlorhexidine because um, now you can't really fully differentiate between cyanosis or the prep. Um, So just just being mindful of those little details. Ensuring surgical counts are done. They're done prior to the procedure, during the procedure, at closure, and when the case is completed. That includes any instrumentation, any needle, any lab pad, which is like a special gauze, any gauzes, anything that could potentially um, stay in a patient needs to be counted. Um And when the procedure is done, before the patient, um, before the surgeon closes up the patient, we need to make sure that everything we started with is present. However, um let's say you're doing your surgical counts, but you're done with another person. It's a two-person um, job. If you have, let's say, you were expecting to have two needles, now you only have eight, um obviously, you're going to recount to make sure that it is, in fact, missing. That it didn't fall on the side, that you didn't miscount um before obviously um the panic and um you have to um, activate these protocols and finding the missing item if in fact you are missing that um piece of um instrumentation a needle a gauze, then there are protocols in place x-rays need to get done most um 4x4s that are used in surgery have a little strip on them that is radio opaque. So if you do an extra, you would be able to see it. Um, Unfortunately, we would like to say that this never occurs, but it does happen to patients. um, And it's usually not right away that they figure it out. It may be later on. And that's a completely preventable um, situation if everybody involved did their surgical counts when they needed to get done um, and accounted for everything that needed to be there now for anesthesia there's different types of anesthesia you have your local and you have your general In general anesthesia the patient is completely unconscious and it requires the patient to be mechanically ventilated hey they often use inhaled gases those inhaled gases can come in a gas form already or they could be liquid um that becomes um gas via the um anesthesia machine they could be iv medications or in most cases it's use combination of different medications in order to achieve the desired effect the main goal of anesthesia is to achieve this triad um, which is analgesia which is pain relief amnesia so the patient does not remember that they're having this surgery and skeletal muscle relaxation obviously we don't want our patients to start moving during surgery um and um something happened the best anesthetics are considered those that work quickly that have a pleasant order um because if you have these unpleasant and irritant anesthetics um that can cause a patient to go into laryngospasm start coughing and obviously that is not a desired um effect um that the anesthetics have a minimal adverse effects that they're cheap stable with high potency the next slide has the phases of anesthesia. There's three main phases for anesthesia. It's induction, which is that time period when the original medications are given. The patient's still not completely out. That's the time that you are going to intubate. Then it becomes maintenance, where we're keeping the patient um completely immobile and at a level where their vitals are stable and where they have enough anesthetics to keep them um in that um. Um, unconscious period or a period of um, complete relaxation, and the surgery is able to be performed. Phase three is recovery. This is when your patient is going to start waking up and having the reversal of those effects from the anesthetic agents. That's an example of an anesthesia machine. Obviously, there comes in different models, but they all basically have the same components. Um, and then the bottom picture is a nerve stimulator. Um, that is how anesthesia knows that the patient has enough um, skeletal muscle relaxants that they're not moving, but they're still having appropriate nerve stimulation. Stages of anesthesia. There's four main stages. There's the analgesia, which is that pain relief. Um, there may be some impaired consciousness. Disinhibition is where that patient's in that twilight phase. They're not completely out, but they're not... Um, aware either and then the surgical anesthesia, it's that happy place. That's where, um, even though we're mechanically ventilating the patient, the patient's still maintaining their bodily functions appropriately. Um, stage four is medullary depression. This rarely happens because we have very um high tech anesthetic um anesthesia machines and monitors um but in the old days where maybe we weren't exactly um cognizant of how much anesthetic agents the patient could have um patients may or maybe an inexperienced doctor or i don't know it could have been a series of things maybe the patient got too much um, anesthesia and this is the body who's basically on a complete shutdown um if you are not fully ventilating and fully maintaining all of their bodily functions then um the patient um will potentially die now for the different anesthetic agents. So you have your inhaled agents. Um, you have your gases. An example would be nitrous oxide, which is a laughing gas. Um, you are completely awake. You're able to breathe on your own. All of your bodily functions you're controlling, but you're in that phase where like, yeah, you know something's happening, but you just don't care. Side effects: nausea, vomiting, poor muscle relaxation, um, and inactivation of, um vitamin b12 so be cautious with patients that have any pernicious anemia they would have um they would need alternative um medications liquids you have your ethers halothane isofluorane some are very good medications some of them are very old medications some of them are no longer used because they're either very irritant or have a lot of side effects for instance halothane um is very hepatotoxic, so obviously we're not going to be using that because there's just too many side effects to risk, um, outweigh the benefits of the medication. One that's used very often is Sivaflorine. It works really well. It works really fast, um, and it has very minimal side effects. Benzodiazepines, those are your PAMs. Those are usually given pre-op. Um, they're never really used alone. They're usually used as adjuncts um, because they cause some amnesia. They cause relaxation um if you give too much or you don't titrate the, pa- the patient could have some sort of cardiac or respiratory arrest so they will always be um titrated up your reversal agent is flumazenil. that's the only reversal agent available for any of the benzodiazepines dissociative uh, medications for instance ketamine um they work really well however if you have a patient that has some sort of psych history such as schizophrenia don't want to use it because it can cause feelings of dissociation hallucinations if you have a patient who already has an underlying condition they can give them this it's not your best option to use that again it's also contraindicated with the history of glaucoma or any acute globe injury Opioids. These are um, all of your narcotics. Your reversal agent is Narcan. Um, they're usually used in combination. They're sometimes used with induction. Um, they have a short duration life. Um, they only last about 30-50 minutes, which is great if you're having um, a short surgery, but they may need to be regiven if the surgery is going to take a little bit longer. It does have some side effects of nausea, vomiting, um, impaired ventilation, respiratory depression. Your barbiturates are your barbitols. Um, these are usually used for light sedation and short procedures. Um, they can be used with induction. Um, they are contraindicated in patients that take MAOIs, which are um, um, antidepressant agents. Um, the barbitols um, sometimes, for instance, are used. Um, let's say a patient needs to have a CT, a pediatric patient, they need to be still. So maybe they'll get a barbitol because it's short acting um, and it works pretty fast. Um, I am going to stop here, um, and then I will continue to cover the rest of the slides. This first podcast is only allowed to be an hour, um, so we will um, pick up um, after that. Okay, class, this is the second part of week one week one perioperative nursing, we're going to pick up with your anesthetic agents, um, under your non-perbiturates, um, hypnotics. Um, these includes your propofol. Um, it is a very commonly used uh, induction agent. It works really fast. And the great thing about it is the minute you turn it off, the patient reverses, the patient wakes up, which is great, especially for, um, those patients, for instance, that are having endoscopies that just need to be sedated. But, um, You don't want them to be completely groggy um, or out of it for the rest of the day. If you have patients that have already a pre-existing history of hypotension, so low BP, you need to be a little more more cautious with them because it does have um, a side effect of causing hypotension. So obviously, if they already started with a low one, you don't want to um, plummet them into um, um, severe hypotension. It does have some anti-emetic properties, which works great. Um, the patients don't get nauseous afterwards. However, it does have a cross sensitivity with patients and have allergies to eggs because it is egg-based. Um, so if you do have a patient who has an egg allergy, you need to be cautious um and um you need to make sure that you let the provider know and the anest- um, anesthesia um provider that this patient um can't get propofol. Now etomidate. Etomidate is a great, um, fast-acting, short-acting drug. However, um, it does have some side effects. Oftentimes, you're really only going to see this um, used mainly in the ERs. For instance, when you're trying to set um, some dislocation, um, it does not have any analgesic effects, so the patient would still feel um um the pain but they're just not going to be um as reluctant um regarding whatever it is that's getting done um side effects include pain at the injection site it's given im um so there's other medications that could be given iv that um would work um better paralytic agents these are your muscle relaxants examples are succinylcholine or vecuronium these are basically paralyzing agents um that is all they do they paralyze the patient the patient's still awake um but they just cannot physically move one of the big ones is that your diaphragm is a muscle so if the patient is about to get um, a muscle a paralytic agent such as succinylcholine or you need to be ready to mechanically ventilate this patient because the patient is not going to be able to breathe on their own because now their diaphragm is also paralyzed. Um, It's often used before intubation because it relaxes the muscles, makes intubation a lot easier and less traumatic. But again, you need to be fully prepared to mechanically ventilate this patient. Reversal agents are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors such as neostigmine, um, which is the one that's um often used, succinylcholine works really fast and it's short acting. Um, during that time, you may see your patient's gonna go um their heart rate's gonna elevate. Um, they may have some um increased respirations. Um, but um it's short acting and then they'll um stabilize again. With Vecaronium, patients may have increased fatigue afterwards. Um, so just be um conscious of that. Um, if the patient has any liver kidney disease it is contraindicated because it's fully processed and adjusted by your liver and your kidneys other agents that get also used are your anticholinergics such as atropine or glycopyrrolate these are going to dry up all the secretions um especially um there's going to be less saliva so um obviously you would have to suction a patient less any GI secretions, etc. But again, it dries everything up. So it is contraindicated if you already have a patient who has a history of glaucoma or previous history of urinary retention because post op, that is one of the side effects of urinary retention, etc. Antiemetics, often you're going to see on Dacitron, which is sulfur, Metoclopramide, which is Reglin, or promethine. Um, The goal is obviously to decrease any post op or nausea, um, which the patient can aspirate or it can cause increased pain, especially if you're having some abdominal surgery and now you're throwing up and doing this excess um, pressure. Sofren is often given before induction and helps with that post-op shivering Um Sometimes you'll see patients that have these shivering um attacks right after the procedure um It's not that they're cold, it's that their body is um it's just a side effect from the body digesting the anesthetic agents um sometimes they may give them aparodine, which is Demerol. um but um if you give sophrine preob um or during surgery um it may prevent it from even happening afterwards um Metoclopramide, which is Breglin, um, enhances gastric antine. It works on the stomach receptors. However, we have to be cautious with patients. and may be an increased risk for extrapyramidal effects, such as your Parkinson's patients or patients that are already on pre-existing antipsychotics. Um, now, let's cover malignant hypothermia. This is a complication. It is a medical emergency if it occurs in surgery. Um, it is an autosomal dominant condition, which means that these patients carry um, a certain gene. Um, it is life-threatening. Um, oftentimes, you will find that you know a relative, there's also had it, but patients that have had rhabdomyolysis, which is um, an increased breakdown of muscle um, after extraneous exercise, are at higher risk of developing malignant hypothermia um symptoms include increased co2 the patient will get very rigid they'll have like these um muscle spasms but one of the main things is that hypothermia their temperatures are going to go increasingly elevated 105 106 beyond what the temperature may even um be able to pick up complications the patient may die if it's not treated within um a certain amount of time and reversed. it can usually it usually occurs right after either a muscle relaxant was given, or for instance, one of the inhaled anesthetics such as like sevoflurane or any of the fluorines. Um, but it can have a delayed effect, and it can occur later on during the um, post-op period. Treatment is you're gonna stop the anesthetic agent, um, stop surgery, and the um reversal agent for this would be dantrolene. And then you need to cool off your patient. It may require cooling blankets. It may require cool saline um fluids, um oxygen, um and supportive care for any of the other um side effects that it may have such as um the hyperkalemia or um the acidosis, etc. Treatment again is dantrolene. um all um surgical sites should have a malignant hypothermia if you work in a hospital, they will have a malignant hypothermia cart specifically for that um They should have it at all surgery centers. They may or may not have it um but they should have um readily available this. Um, Dantrolene is a medication that's given it requires high doses to be given Um, this initial dose would be about two to three milligrams per kilo and then you would drop down um, one milligram per kilo every five minutes um, until the carbon dioxide um, drops or the temperature reaches at least 38.5 now most um than hypothermia cards contain dandrium or ravanto, which is comes in 20 milligrams um, and those have to be reconstituted with 60 ml of so sterile water um, it's a lot that you have to prep it's usually a two-person job in order to make sure that you're reconstituting all this um, with enough speed to be given to the patient there is an alternative called ryanodex which is a higher concentration it's 250 per 5 ml it's very expensive so since um malignant hypothermia is not a common occurrence they usually what they keep in stock is a dantrolene, which it requires the 60 ml of sterile water um for reconstitution if a patient had an episode of malignant hypothermia were able to be reversed um you do need to be aware that it can reoccur um it can reoccur up to 14 hours after the initial episode um, so it's something that could should be kept in mind. Um, oftentimes, these patients will go to ICU just because they have more eyes and ears on them um, in case they have another episode. Now, covering for um, local anesthesia, you have different options. Again, local means that there's only a certain area that's going to be um, numbed in order to get something done. You have your topical agents, which are creams. Um, examples would be, for instance, like Emla. Um, however, because your creams and they need to be absorbed by the skin, it does take some time. It takes about 20 to 25 minutes for the even the effects to start. It needs to be covered in order to help um, the skin absorb that. Um, so it's not really used for something that needs something quick and um, rapid. But for instance, like let's say... Um, something that's more superficial um sometimes they'll use those kind of topical agents infiltrations um for instance um if they're doing a laceration they'll infiltrate that um anesthetic agent into the area in order to numb it out nerve blocks are often used in order to uh, block a certain area um from having pain for instance if you're having ankle surgery they may do a popliteal block and that completely inner um uh, NUMBS or decreases the pain threshold of all the nerves that are innervating um, the lower part of the leg, which works great um, because the patient um, has this extra anesthetic and extra pain relief. Examples would also be a spinal, for instance, with C-section deliveries, epidurals um, that you get um, during labor. Again, both of them um, do have side effects, and you have to be conscious that there could be some sort of CSF leak with both of them. Field blocks, for instance, if you're having a nail removed, um, they'll inject on the sides of the, air, of the finger, um, and it'll block off the area um, that innervates um, the bottom part of the nail bed. Peripheral, um, for instance, if you are giving um, some sort of pain medication for a certain area. Moderate sedation, um, this you're getting a mixture of different medications. The patient is still able to breathe and maintain all of their functions on their own. There's just an impaired consciousness. The patient's still able to move. So obviously we wouldn't give it for something that would require the patient to be completely immobile. Examples would be, for instance, an extensive wound care where the patient may have a lot of pain. We want to kind of help them um, not feel it as much. Um, but again, the patient is still fully able to maintain all of their bodily functions. Um, sometimes they use it also, for instance, when they're putting like a pacemaker or something like that where... Um, You don't want the patient to remember or to feel it, um, but you don't want to have any of the increased risk factors of intubating um, a patient. So post-op area, uh, post-op is the minute that the patient reaches recovery to the time that the patient gets discharged, whether it's home, whether it's to the unit, whether it's ICU, wherever it is that they're going to go afterwards in order to fully recover. So different um, hospitals have different options as far as PACU, which is your post-anesthesia care unit. Um, PACU-1 would be um, the patients may still come intubated, They may still be um, unconscious, but they may be starting to wake up. And a PACU-2 phase, um, they're already awake. Um, they may not be fully alert, but they're already um, recovering their consciousness. So patient um, care during this post-op period is a collaborative effort. It's between anesthesia, the surgeon, and obviously the nursing team. Um, your nursing responsibilities, obviously, is to make sure that your patient is stable. Your number one priority in PACU is airway maintenance. Regardless of what surgery your patient had, you need to ensure that the airway is maintained, that the patient's able to breathe on their own that there's no risk for obstruction, that the patient is transitioning fully back to their pre-op status. Vital signs, you need to take them um every 15 minutes in order to make sure your patient um is stable after surgery. Again with this oxygen saturation, you may have patients that um like your see with PD patients, they may not go back. Obviously if they're natural um if their pre-op baseline O2 sat is 92, they're not gonna be back you know, at 92 on discharge. Naturally, there's going to be a decrease um, in that number, but it's going to be um, what is appropriate for that patient. So your consciousness, obviously the patient's going to go from an unconscious period to a fully conscious period. Um, if the patient is not fully conscious, your best positioning is going to be the recovery position, which is that first picture. You have them on your side. If they do happen to throw up, they're not going to aspirate. They're going to be able to um, put it off to the side, um, give you time to suction them out. Head-to-toe assessments. You need to make sure that you are aware of what your patient has, what they don't have, Um, that you are um, calculating any INO. You're confirming all lines, drains, folies. What is going in, what is coming out, what they have, what they don't have. Some positions you are unable to put a patient in. For instance, a patient who just had a spinal anesthesia, you cannot elevate their legs until they regain their full function of their legs and sensation. Um, so it is important that you know what kind of anesthesia your patient had. Um, once they start if they had regular anesthesia and um, they're starting to you know regain consciousness you may elevate their head of bed they're going to be a little bit more comfortable but again if they're still impaired consciousness you want them on their side in case they do happen to throw up um make sure you're monitoring post-sub labs sometimes they'll want you to repeat cbc a blood gas etc and if there is any abnormal findings that you are reporting into anesthesia to the surgeon During that time, you're also going to start your pain management. Um, The patient's going to be more alert. They have already reversing from the anesthesia, so now they're going to start to feel what what occurred to them. Hey, medications need to be titrated. Um, Sometimes, you know, you want to be a little bit more um, generous. You may give a higher dose, but you don't know what kind of reaction the patient may have. So you're better off working your way up, because you can always give a little bit more, but you can't give a little bit less. And there are certain times, for instance, uh, patients that are overweight, that have high BMIs. Um, narcotics like to sit in that adipose tissue, and then it all gets released at once. So you're giving, 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 um, thinking that it's not working, and then all of a sudden it all gets released, and now your patient is apneic, and you're going to have to ventilate them. Um, monitoring for post-op nausea and vomiting. You're medicating as necessary, um, Obviously, anytime that there's like any vomiting involved, there's going to be increased pain, especially for abdominal surgeries. But there's also a risk of increased intracranial pressure. So if your patient had some um, sort of surgery, let's say a craniotomy, um, some sort of you know brain surgery of some kind, you don't want their blood, their increased um, intracranial pressure to go up. Um, so that's something that we want to be um, cognizant about skin integrity we're going to be looking at dressings we're going to be looking at what they have is it bleeding is it saturated is it dry um do they have any drains are they properly um you know secured um etc if they have any pressure ulcers you need to monitor for those look at those bony prominences um oh, bony prominent areas Um, where they may have a stage one, where it may be red. you want to monitor that either it goes away or that you're documenting that it is present. In order to discharge a patient from Alpaca 1, there needs to be a modified ALDRED score of nine or more. The modified ALDRED score monitors the patient's activity. Are they able to voluntarily move um, their extremities? The goal is to have all four extremities voluntarily move on command. Uh, respirations. Are they able to um, deep breathe and cough? Are they, you know, they're breathing on their own and they're fully back to their baseline status. Circulation, their blood pressure be, should be within a range of their pre-op baseline. Consciousness, the patient should be fully awake by the time you send them out. And oxygen saturation should be above 92%. Again, if your patient's baseline is 92 or less, then obviously we are not going to be expecting them to be at 92 afterwards. Now if, if from PACU 2 there is a post anesthetic discharge scoring system. This one also involves um activity, um nausea vomiting, pain and surgical bleeding. Um so we want to make sure, we want to make sure that the patient um has minimal nausea and vomiting. You don't want to discharge a patient um that is fully vomiting um to go home and then have to come back because they're having intractable vomiting or because they're dehydrated. We want to make sure that pain levels are within an acceptable level. You don't want them to have an uncontrolled pain level and you're sending them home. Same thing with surgical bleeding. If there's an excess amount of bleeding in a dressing, we need to investigate. Was something nicked? Is there something that needs to be cauterized, etc. Now for post-op complications, Sometimes patients will become hypoxic. And the way that they show it is that they're air hungry. They'll get extremely restless, anxious. They may get combative. Then their vital signs will start to get off. And this is usually a sign that they're not getting enough oxygenation. O2-sat probes have a delay in them. Um, So again, we don't treat monitors, we treat patients. If your patient doesn't look right, even if your monitor says that everything is normal, you need to address that because we, again, we treat patients. We don't treat. We don't treat monitors, we treat patients. Post-up care after PACU. Um... Well, post-op complications, sorry. Um, in addition to that, you have your nausea, your vomiting, urinary retention. It is natural for a patient who just had a fully put in or certain surgeries, to might have a little bit of a urinary retention period. But again, that should be reversible. Adelactasis, pneumonia, these will be later on. Fever, same thing with wound infections and dehiscence. Um, we need to make sure we are addressing and being proactive regarding those possible complications. For post-op care, um, after the PACU, you're gonna assess your patient from head to toe on arrival. Oftentimes, that is the best time to assess your patient. You're able to see the patient from head to toe. The patient's already getting moved He's over there. Um, sorry. Um, The patient's already getting moved from the bed um to their room so obviously that is a great time to see everything you don't have to remove them afterwards and make them uncomfortable it's also a good time to see drains dressings um and get a baseline idea of what your patient looks like i know sometimes it's maybe hard to leave patients to kind of get an idea of what's happening with them but if you're able to get you know another nurse or you know that your patient's coming back in 30 minutes kind of make arrangements so you're able to be there for that um it's hard to identify um what is normal or not normal after surgery if you weren't able to see them how they came in um let's say your dressing now is completely saturated do you know did that occur um, in transition or is that a new finding okay um, monitor vital signs upon arrival you want to make sure that um, your patient is stable um during that time you're going to review your post-op orders and make sure that you have adequate orders, let's say, for pain medication. The last thing you want is for your patient to be in pain and you didn't realize you didn't have any pain medications um, ordered because maybe um, they weren't entered correctly or maybe they forgot to enter them, etc. Review your post-op orders um, for labs. Um sometimes patients need recurrent CBCs to monitor their hemoglobin levels. Make sure that you know and they're entered um so phlebotomy knows when to come and when not to come. Ensure that they have their compression devices in order to prevent any DVTs, um, especially if they're gonna be in prolonged times of being immobile. Review um your activity for your patient and the diet restrictions and if they have family members make sure you let them know as well. Sometimes patients wake up, they're super hungry, somebody went and got them a burger and fries and now the patient's supposed to be NPO. Um so just kind of be proactive with um communication with your patient and your families. Okay. Again, you also want um to have in your room any emergency trays that you may need for instance if you have a patient who had a tracheostomy there's a risk of having um, increased swelling um, of their airway so if they're having a medical emergency you want to make sure you have an emergency tracheostomy a tray at the bedside you don't want to wait until the emergency occurs to start making phone calls to get a tray you want to be able to have it at the bedside readily available for you in the moment of emergency this is a um an example of a um, communication tool from PACI to you. What did they have done? Um, what dressings did they have? When was the last pain medication they gave? Were there any complications that occurred? Is there something that's pending for that patient to be ordered or given, etc.? Okay, once they're out, with you make sure you're encouraging their deep breathing in order to prevent any pneumonia, atelectasis, that they're using their incentive spirometer. Try to get them up and walking as soon as they are able to do so. Um, it helps with not just um, mobility but it also helps for instance if your patient had laparoscopic surgery they're inflated so they basically blow them up like a little balloon in order for them to be able to see all of the areas in the abdomen they try to deflate them afterwards but there's always some air that gets trapped in the cavity naturally by gravity it will travel up it'll get stuck in their um, shoulder blades they'll be complaining of pain if they're able to walk and pass gas they are going to feel much better strict diagnose during that post-op period. You want to make sure that you're monitoring their renal output. If your patient has less than 30 mls for more than two hours, that needs to be reported to the provider. That's oliguria, and prolonged periods of oliguria can cause kidney injury. Um, make sure that your patient, if they're unable to move, that you are repositioning them every two hours in order to prevent any breakdown of skin. Frequent pain assessments and management. Um, it doesn't just ne- need to be a pharmacological intervention. There may be other non-pharm interventions that could be done for the patient in order to help them have some sort of pain relief in between the time that they may um, have between one pain order and the next one. Okay. Frequent assessment of their drains and dressings. Make sure that your dressings are not bleeding profusely. If you have a drain it should be draining something. If your drains are not draining, you need to figure out why. Don't wait until 12 hours passed and now you have these empty drains. If they're not draining, that's going somewhere. You are your number one patient advocate. During this time, you need to be their eyes and ears and you need to look out for things. Look for those little cues, um, little things that may not be very obvious, but they could have um, some sort of um, they can give you some sort of idea of your patients doing okay or not. Okay, now for discharge of patients, if you are sending them home, make sure you explain to them as far as your meds, what they need to keep, making, uh, keep taking, what they need to stop taking, what may be new, and always confirm with the family or whoever is taking them home, what pharmacy they were sent to. Sometimes patients will come back and they'll be like, I don't know where my medications went it may be days before they realize it um and now they've been without their medication um for um a period of time activity restrictions when can they start driving when can they go upstairs um how much can they lift You know, if you've had an abdominal surgery and you have a toddler at home, obviously you can't be carrying them. That's something that you need to explain to the patient so they know. Same thing with sexual activity. Sexual activity may be contraindicated in certain procedures because it's considered strenuous activity. So you need to inform them. With the driving, for instance, if you just had a C-section or you just had a vaginal delivery, you cannot drive for two weeks. Because if you get into a car accident, there's a risk that you may rupture your uterus. Be specific and tell patients exactly what it is that they need or need um, or cannot do. Same thing with diet. If they have to be on a special diet, give them examples. Don't assume that they know. Don't assume that they're going to look it up. And don't assume that um, somebody is looking out for their best interests at home. Tell them that they need to increase their calories and their protein intake after surgery because your body needs protein to heal. Um, give them examples of what they can eat in order to help them um heal better. If they're diabetic, especially after surgeries, they need to have a good glycemic control. Otherwise, they could have a delayed wound healing. So we want to promote that they keep a closer eye on their um, blood sugar levels. And any special treatments, when they need to change the dressing, if they need to have a special cream, a special dressing, tell them what it is, where can they get it, um, show them how to empty their drains, any use of any assisted devices, and if they need to follow up with social worker regarding any equipment that may or may not have to be delivered to their home. And then the last slide are your possible nursing diagnosis, um, which include ineffective airway clearance, ineffective tissue perfusion, deficient fluid volume, imbalanced nutrition, urinary retention, acute pain, and risk for infection. So that covers level... Um, that covers um perioperative care um and remember this is the second of um two um recordings